that in mind, open your Bibles with me to Hosea chapter 2, please. We've started to open up the first book in the Minor Prophets, and as we did that, there was a little bit of confusion, because over chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, I was reading out of the New American Standard Bible, which is not my normal preaching Bible. I like the way that it translated some things. The last thing I want to do is cause confusion. So we're back to the ESV. So if you pull it up on your phone, we'll be back in the ESV if you want to follow along. The majority of you read out of your preferred version anyway. So there you go. You are all going to do whatever is right in your own eyes. Um, and in this instance, I'm going to say that's okay. It's not exactly the judge's route. So, But just to let you know, that's what I'll be reading out of the ESV today. And as we come to Hosea 2, we spent the first half of the chapter looking at God's case against Israel. Uh, through the picture of Hosea pleading with his children to testify against their mother. In this tragic, heartbreaking scene, he calls his children who are old enough to witness and understand what their mother has done to contend against her. And he says, this is my case against your mother. And parallel, God says, this is my case against you, Israel. Israel is an unfaithful people. They took the bond, the intimacy, the unity that they were supposed to have with Yahweh, the God who called them, and they abandoned that. And like a woman chasing after other men, they chased after the gods of all the nations around them. They were a spiritually adulterous people as they engaged in their idolatry. Not only were they unfaithful, God said, you are an ungrateful people. You take those things that I've given you and, and you attribute those to the gods. Uh, all of those things that were mine, my wine, my grain, my oil, you said that Baal, that all the idols of the nations were the ones that gave those to you. And it's this kind of perversion of God's grace as they credit man-made, useless idols with their provision. And so God says, I'm going to strip it away. I'm going to take back everything that was mine to begin with, and I will expose just how weak and helpless you are on your own. And finally says the people are hypocritical. Because even as they were worshiping the idols, they would mix in their worship of God right alongside that. They would celebrate the sacrifices, the feasts, the festivals, the new moons, the Sabbaths. They would do all of the things. They would give God what he said was his, but everything else they would give to the idols around them. But God doesn't share his glory. God will not share his worship with anyone. And so God is going to remove the blessings and the benefits of his protection. He's going to remove all of those covenant blessings that they've turned their back on. And again, he's going to expose the absolute helplessness of the people. And when God does that, not only is there going to be no one who can help them, uh, Israel is going to have no choice but to recognize that it is God who's done this to them. And long passages that deal with sin and judgment are difficult. We're going to have several of them as we move through the Minor Prophets as fair warning. But they're important. They're important because this isn't an Israel problem. This isn't a Jewish problem. This is a universal human problem. We are a sinful people. And our sin is just as vile, just as uncomfortable, just as blatant as Israel's was. We might not form idols of wood and stone. We might not have something at home that we stick on the mantle. But you and I are very, very prone to put something other than God in the place of priority in our heart. It might be any number of things. It might even be good things. Our marriages, our careers, our ministry. And yet those things that cause us to sin, those things that cause us not to produce the fruit of the Spirit, those things that take God's rightful place are idols nonetheless. 
and as difficult as it is, sin brings judgment. And so we have to think in terms of the seriousness of sin and the rightness of judgment that comes. And that makes sense. If we pull this back and look at it again in kind of the case of Israel contending in a legal sense against God, the case is clear. It's open and shut, and judgment makes sense. The more difficult thing to try and wrestle through is that that's not the end. All through the rest of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, which is our text for today, the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see the redeeming love of God. The unimaginably gracious mercy of God that takes a rebellious and sinful people and restores them to their right relationship with Him. It's love that takes an adulterer and moves them back into a marriage-type relationship. It is one of the more powerful pictures in all of the Bible of what God's love poured out on sinners looks like. So if you're not there already, find your way to Hosea chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 14, just to kind of mark this drastic change that takes place. Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, this is what God's Word says. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Let's pray. Lord, sin is serious, and judgment makes sense. We pursue justice. We pursue right penalties for sin. Lord, grace is a tough thing for us to understand. We can't get our minds and our hearts fully around the idea that a holy God would forgive a sinful people. And yet you have, and you do. God, don't ever let us lose the wonder of that fact. The incomprehensible mercy of the gospel message And so, God, as we come to this unimaginable mercy today, would you open our eyes? Help us to see the wonderful things that you've left for us in your word. And then drive us to obedience. Lord, don't let us be a people who hear the story, who who kind of marvel at the grace, and then who leave somehow unaffected. Lord, we know that that's a work that only you can do. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. What's the hardest thing someone's ever asked you to do? Maybe for some of you, it was get through a particular class, or maybe for some of you, it was get through school in general. Um, Maybe for some of you, with your background, it was to get through basic training, or maybe even combat in the military. For roughly half of you, maybe that toughest thing would be childbirth. I've never personally experienced it, but I hear that can be slightly difficult. However, understand that I also understand that the man cold is just as bad, if not worse. So, maybe for some of you, the hardest thing you've ever had to do is walk through heartache and heartbreak, either yours or someone else's that you know. Maybe the hardest thing you've ever been asked to do is to forgive something that you would consider unforgivable in someone else. To take a wrong that caused you pain, suffering, sorrow, and move in forgiveness toward that person. 
Maybe even as I talk about that, you have kind of a line in your mind. I'm a forgiving person up to this point. I would forgive this far, but I'm not sure I could go any further when it comes to forgiveness. It's hard to forgive. In fact, it's impossible to rightly forgive on our own because my flesh wants justice for me. When it comes to how I relate with you, I want mercy. But when it comes to my situation, my flesh wants justice. And I'm asking you to think about that because as we saw last week, God makes that case against Israel and their failure has no excuse. They deserve no mercy. They have earned everything that God is going to pour out on them. And yet, today we see a chapter and a half that's really the prelude to the rest of the book and the minor prophet, a chapter and a half of God's redeeming love, God's unimaginable, unfailing, redeeming love for his people. And as we do that, uh, we're going to see it unfold first in the promise that he makes, these remarkable promises that God makes with regard to restoration. Then we're going to see the picture of what that looks like, particularly in Hosea's life. So let's open this up and let's look at the promises that he makes. And the first part of this beautiful promise is that God is going to show mercy to his people once again. You remember the name given to Hosea's daughter, Lo Ruhama, no mercy. And in the first part of the chapter, first part of chapter two, there was this graphic picture of what it's going to look like when God removes his mercy. I'm going to basically strip you naked and cast you out and make you like a desert. This graphic portrayal of God removing his merciful provision from them. And that statement in verse four of chapter two that says God is going to show no mercy because of Israel's idolatry. But look at verse 14. Therefore, behold... Now, what had just come right before? Verse 13, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and her jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. The last word of God's condemnation against Israel in the first half of this chapter is she forgot me. Therefore, now what would you expect would follow up that therefore? Israel forgot God, therefore... I will forget Israel. That is absolutely 100% what ought to come next. They forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. They forgot me, so I'm going to chase them. Man, I can barely preach that. (laughs) They forgot me, so I'm going to go after them. They abandoned me, so I'm going to speak kindly to them. They cursed the covenant that they made with me, so I'm going to woo them. I'm going to take them out to the wilderness. And and don't miss this. As we go through Hosea, you're going to see multiple passages that refer to the wilderness. The idea of the exodus out from Egypt and into a promised land is a major theme in the Minor Prophets, not only in Hosea, but in the Minor Prophets. That exodus that was is going to point to an exodus that is yet coming. And if you miss that, you miss a major theme, and it makes it really hard to identify and to interpret some of these passages. But therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Not only is he going to woo her and win her back and speak tenderly to her, but look at verse 15. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. 
And she shall answer as in the days of her youth and as the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So there's that picture of the exodus in the land of Egypt. And that's tied into what he's going to do here. He's going to give her vineyards. And we know the theme is already, he says, I'm going to take what was mine. I'm going to take back those vineyards. I'm going to take my vines. I'm going to take my provision away. And now we start to see this picture of God giving back what was his. God giving back the blessings that he took. And he says something about the Valley of Acorn. That means almost nothing to us because we don't know what that means. But it's in the context of that coming out of Egypt. And if you look up at this next slide, you're going to see kind of a map there of really what is the eastern side of the kingdom there. Joshua is now leading the people of Israel. Moses is dead. Joshua is leading them as they begin their entrance into the promised land. And the first city that they come up against is Jericho. And most of us are familiar with that wonderful story, right? God gives the city into their hand in a remarkable way. The people march around the city for six days in silence, and on the seventh day they shout, and the walls fall. Now when the people went into Jericho, God gave them a very specific command. He said, do not take anything from this city for yourself. It's all mine. Everything of any value is mine, not yours. And the people go in, they overrun the city, they completely capture it, only Rahab and her family are saved, and most of the people obey. A man named Achan takes some of the spoils of war for himself, and he hides it among his belongings. The people go up for the next battle against a city called Ai, which you'll see there just to the left, and they suffer a humiliating defeat. Compared to Jericho, Ai should have been nothing, and they suffer defeat, and the people are despondent. Well, why? And God points out the reason. He, he exposes the sin of Achan. He reveals to the people who it was that disobeyed the Lord. And so the people take Achan and his family, and they stone them in what's called the Valley of Achor. That is a place of judgment. It is a constant reminder of sin, of failure, and of God's judgment against that sin in that place. And what does God say he's going to do? I'm going to take that valley. I'm going to take that place that is a constant reminder just by the very name. It means a place of trouble from generation to generation. And I'm going to take that and turn it from a place of trouble into a doorway of hope. And as he does that, he talks about Israel in a very particular way. There in that valley, in that place, they will answer. They will sing as in the days of their youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. How did God picture Israel in the first half of this chapter under judgment? Uh, helpless, like an infant stripped bare and laid in a field left to die. That's the imagery from Ezekiel as well. And now he, he's using image of a beautiful young woman. Not Israel as a helpless child, but Israel in beauty and strength. And again, if you read through the prophets, Ezekiel in particular, it's how Israel is pictured at a time of strength. And he says, I'm going to restore that which I took away. God is holy and justice must be dealt. But how merciful is God? How merciful is God to go after a people who forgot about him and ran away from him? And that would be unimaginable enough, but that's not the end of it. Not only is God going to show them mercy, but God is going to call them his people. Remember the, remember the name of Hosea's last son. Lo Amin, not my people. Uh, the most horrible of the promises of judgment that could be laid out. The people that were his people called his special treasured possession among all the nations no longer called his. Remember how chapter 2 opened. Contend against your mother. 
Plead with her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. She is no longer mine, and I am no longer hers. But look at what God is going to do now. Verse 16, and in that day, in that day is very important. It chronologically puts things together. If, we're not gonna, if we don't get that, we have a difficult time tying when things are happening or when they're supposed to happen. In that day, declares the Lord, what day? In that day where Achor becomes a place of hope rather than trouble, in that day, other remarkable things are going to happen. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal or my master. Where God once said, you are not my wife and I am not your husband, where that relationship was broken and shattered, now God says it's going to be put back together like a marriage restored after the violation of adultery, God is going to restore the relationship to these people, and they are going to be called his once again. No longer is it going to be my Baal. See, the the worship of Israel had become so polluted, so convoluted, that you couldn't even separate the idolatry and the false worship from the worship that God had called them to. God says no more. There's going to come a day when I call you mine and you call me yours. And who does that? Does Israel finally decide to do what's right? Does Israel pull themselves up by the bootstraps and fix their spiritual course? No. Verse 17, he says, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. God is the one who is going to do this. Israel needs a radical heart change, and God is the one that is going to accomplish it. And what else is going to happen in that day? Verse 18, and not only am I going to call you mine, not only are you going to call me my husband in that day, verse 18, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. What was part of that judgment that we saw back in Leviticus 18? Or I'm sorry, Leviticus 26. When the people were rebellious, when the people were sinful, God was going to allow the wild animals to come in and ravage their towns, their cities, their flocks. He mentioned that in chapter 2, that they were going to be subject to the wild beasts once again. And now he says, when he restores them, he's going to make a covenant with them. And again, this points back and it's grounded in something other than what we might just see here. If you were to go all the way back to Genesis 9, the ark the flood have just ended. And Noah and his family are now off the boat, and God says that he is going to make a covenant. In Genesis 9, God says, the fear and the terror of man will be on the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things on the ground. There's going to be enmity even between men and animals. And God says, I'm going to undo that. Same categories. He's pointing to a restoration and a blessing that is unlike anything Israel has ever experienced. And he goes further. Not only is he going to make a covenant with the animals, the birds, the creeping things on the ground, but he says, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Those instruments of war are going to be done away with. The war itself will be done away with. It's not just that the people are going to fight and win. It's that the people won't have to fight anymore. And again, prophetically, this is a constant theme. If you go back and you read Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11, it talks about a time when even the animals are at peace. That whole lion and the lamb thing. Kids in the cobra's den. 
talks about the end of war and hostility. But most incredibly, as incredible as that is, most incredibly, look at what God's going to do for his people. Verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Israel, that marriage that you destroyed, that marriage that your adultery violated, I'm going to put back together. And I'm not going to betroth you to me until you're faithless again. I'm going to betroth you to me. I'm going to bind you to me forever. In righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love, that constant covenant-keeping love of God, and in mercy. And at that time, in that day, when God does this, they will finally be able to say, they know the Lord. That's a remarkable promise. And he's still not done. Because the final promise of chapter 2 looks back to the name of Jezreel. And where they're scattering, now there's going to be planting. Look at verse 21. And it will come about in that day. In what day? In that day when Israel's idolatry is purged. In that day when the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky are at peace. In that day when war is banished from the land. In that day when Israel knows the Lord. All of that is happening in this day. That is the time that is fixed here. In that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. Now, the, here's the picture of what's happening. That sounds weird. What, what's answering what here? It's as if the sky is crying out for rain. And the crops are crying out for the rain. And Jezreel, the valley itself, is crying out for the crops. It's like the world itself is groaning under the weight of sin and is crying out for its restoration. And God says, in that day, I'm going to answer. In that day of spiritual restoration, I'm going to show a physical restoration of well as well. And the skies are going to open and they're going to rain. And the crops are going to be produced in Jezreel. That valley that was always so critical in providing for the needs of Israel is going to be overflowing and abundant once again. And you have to get this prophetically. The spiritual restoration of Israel and the physical restoration of Israel are always tied together over and over and over through the prophets, over and over and over through the covenant promises of God. Physical and spiritual restoration are tied together. You do not get one without the other. Israel is not physically blessed while they remain spiritually rebellious. And Israel is not spiritually restored without seeing the blessings of God poured out on them again. Now, there are good and godly men and women who come down on different sides of that, and I understand that. Uh, There are people that I consider extremely valuable teachers of God's word that say we see the fulfillment of these promises poured out on the church. I can't get there primarily because the curses that are laid out are physical and literal and were poured out in history and the restorations are spoken in the same breath in the same passages with the same language. And the restoration is tied to a spiritual restoration. And again, it's not just here. It happens over and over. Uh, But beyond that, there's something that we miss here. Not only is God going to do these physical blessings, but he says, I'm going to plant them to sow them for myself in the land. And there's there's a wordplay there with the idea of Jezreel. Jezreel, that valley of provision, Jezreel means scattering. Now, 
We're going to take a risk. Any kids that want to come up and help me, I could use your help for a couple of seconds. Mike Thomas, once again, you are not allowed to participate in this. But if there's any kids that are willing to come up and do this, it's not hard. You don't have to say anything, and you get to make a little bit of a mess in church. So come on up. If not, I'm going to do it, and it's going to lose a lot of its cuteness. You ready to help? Come on up here. Here, take a handful of that. Maybe two handfuls. Yeah, there you go. We'll make a big mess. All right. So in Bible times, when a farmer would plant their seeds, you know how they would do it? They would scatter them like this. You guys want to scatter some seeds? Me too. Go, scatter seeds. Show us what it would look like. Whoa, that is aggressive scattering. Go ahead, Sadie. Thanks, guys. Wonderful job. Now stop for a minute. Do you see what God said he was going to do to the people? I am going to scatter you. This was the place you had called home. This was the place that I had promised to you that you are unfaithful and I'm going to scatter you. But here's what that scattering also does when it comes to seeds. That is exactly how seeds were planted. And God says what was scattered is now going to be seen as planted. What a cool image that God takes his judgment and not only reverses it, he uses the same picture to show that he is now going to establish his people where they were before removed. And there's just this wonderful kind of conclusion there. I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. That child with the terrible name of no mercy, that child with the worst name of not my people, I'm going to call you mercy. I'm going to call you my people. And you're going to say, you are my God. Not only is God going to prove faithful, Israel's going to get it. And they're going to know the Lord and they're going to say, you are my God. That is what God does for his wayward people. That is an unbelievable, unimaginable, beautiful picture of God's grace. Uh, Those promises highlight God's kindness to ruined sinners. And as we turn the page to chapter 3, God's going to give us an illustration, a picture of just how deep and powerful his love is. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce said that Hosea 3 was the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. I'm not sure that I can make an argument for one chapter being the greatest in all the Bible, but I'd have a hard time arguing against it because the picture here, as gut-wrenching as the picture was in chapter 1, this picture is potentially even more moving here in chapter 3. As we open up verse 1, we're going to be confronted with the price of redemption. Chapter 3, verse 1, And the Lord said to me, the first time the Lord came to Hosea, it was with this unthinkable call to love a woman that's not going to be faithful to him. And I think somehow, as difficult as that was, and I cannot imagine how difficult that would be, go and love a woman who is going to cheat on you, I think this call might be even harder. Because he says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Hosea, that woman you loved, that you bound yourself to, the one that abandoned you for the love of other men, I want you to go. And I want you to love her again. Now, we're not given the details of what happened between Hosea and Gomer. We know that she's unfaithful. God told us that would be true. But we know that 
as time has passed, that adultery is even present and clear to her children. But at this point, the text implies that there has been separation, that Gomer hasn't only cheated, but she's abandoned him altogether. And he's called to go after her, to seek out the one who left him to pursue other people. And not only is he to go, God says, love her again. First, that implied that he loved her in the first place. That Hosea didn't participate in kind of a sham picture marriage where he wasn't actually invested. He loved her. And now he is called not only to love her, but to love her again. See, it would be one thing to go after her and grab her and drag her back home and say, you are mine And here are all of the hundreds of restrictions that are now going to characterize your wicked life because of what you've done. But God says, go and love her again. I want you to enter back into a state of affection, intimacy, care for her. How can God ask that? Because the rest of verse 3 says, Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I want you to do this because this is how I love the sons of Israel, even though they constantly stray from me. What do raisin cakes have to do with anything? Hard to be dogmatic about this. It either means the uh, kind of the opulence and the extravagance that Israel lusted after, or I think probably the better evidence is those were used in cultic pagan worship. So even though Israel pursues idolatry and all that goes along with that, God says, I want you to go after her in the same way that I'm going after my people. And again, it would be one thing to go after her and find her, but he's going to have to pay a price to redeem her. Verse 2, so I bought her. Can you imagine that? Not only go and find her, but you are going to have to pay something to get back what should have always been yours to begin with. And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a lethek or an omer and a half of barley. He's going to pay a price because at this point, Gomer has not only abandoned him, but the picture is that she is now essentially owned by someone else. Through whatever series of circumstances played into that, she is no longer her own. She is in bondage to another, and Hosea has to go and redeem her from that. And now, after he does that, Hosea essentially owns his wife. And again, what do you think the human tendency would be? You're going to come home, and you're going to get a job, and you're going to pay back every cent of what I had to spend to get you out of the mess that you created. But look at what he does. This is what Hosea calls Gomer to. You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to come home, and you're going to be mine again. You're not going to go after anyone else, and here's the kicker, and I'm going to be the same way. I'm going to call you back to a relationship of faithfulness like we had at the beginning. I am going to call you to bind yourself to me, and I'm going to do the same to you as if you never left. We're once again going to be united, faithful, and joined together. 
It, it is an unthinkable picture of faithfulness, of redeeming love that buys back what has no business being bought back. And I cannot imagine how difficult that would be <laughs> to pay a price to redeem the wife that you had been nothing but faithful to to promise to love her again, to promise to rekindle that relationship that she was the one that broke. And yet that's exactly what Hosea is called to do. And here's the point. That, that's the picture, and here's the point to that picture. This is exactly how God is going to demonstrate his love toward his faithless people. Look at verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince. The sons of Israel are going to move from desolation and bondage to restoration. They are going to be held captive in much the same way that Gomer was. And in that captivity, one of the things that is going to characterize that is they're going to dwell many days without king or prince. They're going to dwell, they're going to live, they're going to exist without any kind of rule over them that they would recognize as right and righteous rule. And if you look back through Israel's history, boy, that is exactly what happened. When Assyria removes the northern kingdom, when Babylon removes the southern kingdom, when they exist for a generation in captivity, even when they come back to the land, no king, no prince, no son of David that sits on the throne. You go through the history of Israel from the time of captivity, and it's just empire after empire that rules over them. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then you go on and on through the ages. The Byzantines, Muslims, Crusaders, Ottomans, British, people after people after people. Even now, Israel has a freedom of a form of government. They are not united under a single leader, but again, we'll come back to that in just a moment. They are going to have that rule over them removed, and not only that, they're going to dwell without king or prince, he says, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Israel is going to be stripped of all of her religious ceremony. And that includes the things that God had given him and that God had established, right? The sacrifices. God called them to sacrifice. The ephod. It was a, a garment to be worn by the high priest in Israel's worship. And God says, I'm going to take that away. You will not have that. And we know that that occurred not only, again, when the people are carried away by Assyria, but more particularly when Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, the ability to practice those things is gone. God is actually going to remove the opportunity for their hypocritical worship. And at the same time, he's also going to strip away those things that deal with idolatry, sacred pillars, household gods. Israel is going to be left completely bare. But that's not the end of the story of Israel's worship. Verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. After that period of desolation and destruction, he says the people are going to return. And what we know from chapter 1, verse 11, is that when Israel returns, it returns as the Israel, sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, that they're gathered together. Chapter 1 told us that this is not just Israel, the northern kingdom, that this is Israel once again regathered into a single people. And when they return, they will seek the Lord their God. When this happens, the people are going to have a radical heart change. They are not coming back seeking a stronger military. They are not coming back seeking better political alliances. When they come back, they come back seeking the Lord their God. The God that they forgot, the God that they didn't even know, they're coming back seeking the one who was always supposed to be their God. And again, it has to be pointed out, this is not Israel now. Israel now 
is not seeking after the Lord their God. They are not seeking after David, their Messiah, their king. They're longing for him. They are not seeking him as he is called to. And we'll get to that in a moment. But the promises related to Israel's physical restoration can't be separated from the spiritual restoration. It's difficult for us. The land of Israel does not mean God's blessings are being completely poured out on them now because they continue to live in hard-hearted rebellion. But at a coming time, they will seek the Lord their God. And when they do, they're not only going to seek the Lord their God, they're also going to seek David, their king. And here we see all those promises of the Davidic covenant coming to fruition. And of course, those see Jesus Christ as their, familiar, as their, uh, their uh, fulfillment. We went over that in Matthew 1. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. And then a whole genealogy that proves that he is the right and rightful ruler over his people. He is the king that is going to sit on the throne of his father David. In chapter 1, Hosea gave us a glimpse of that. He said that the people would set for themselves one head, that they would be a united people, united under one ruler. And now in chapter 3, as prophecy often does, it says it again and it gives further detail, further clarification. That one head is David, their king. If you go back and if you read 2 Samuel chapter 7, that is where that Davidic covenant was laid out. It's where God promised to build a house for David, not a physical house, but a line of kings that would come after him where he promised David that there would be a throne that would be established forever. And again, the Davidic covenant is not only tied to a king who will sit on the throne. The Davidic covenant itself is tied to a restoration to the land. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore. Does that sound familiar? That is so very parallel to exactly what Hosea said would happen here. That when they seek the Lord, when they have their king, they are planted, like Jezreel, in the land and freed from war and oppression and all of those things that continue to plague Israel throughout their history. Remember, the prophets do not write in a vacuum. They write in the consistent flow of Israel's history with God. They write in the consistent flow of Israel's covenant promises with God in the past and His faithfulness in the future. And Hosea reminds us that although the people are faithless, although they might go so far as to forget the Lord completely, God does not forget. He will be perfectly faithful to his every promise. And look how chapter 3 ends. And they shall come in fear or trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. They're going to seek God and they're going to seek David and they are going to come to the Lord. And unimaginably, the one that they seek is going to allow himself to be found. He's going to be found by, him, by them. The relationship that their changed hearts now desire is going to be provided, and they're going to come trembling with the right fear of God restored in their hearts, a fear that they abandoned long ago for the fear of idols and the fear of the nations around them. Now it's going to be restored to a right and righteous fear of God, but fear is not the last word. Look at this. They're going to come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness. Can you imagine that? The harlot comes back, and she finds goodness. The adulterer returns and she finds mercy. That's the love of God for his redeemed people. And when does this happen? In the latter days, at the last, in the end. God is going to wrap all of this up in his perfect timing. What a picture of the Redeemer's love. 
Redeeming love is a picture of the Redeemer's love because how can a holy God redeem and restore sinful people? Hosea chapter 3 is a dramatic picture, but it's only a picture. And it points the way for something that would happen hundreds of years later. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is how we know what redeeming love looks like. God sent his Son. God sent his Son into the world to redeem a people out of the bondage and slavery to sin and death. This is how we know what love is. Not that a people loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. In all the wonderful, encouraging, sharpening debates about when this happens and who it applies to, don't miss this. Our sin had a cost. And it was a price so high that you and I could never pay it, so God did on our behalf. That Jesus Christ came into the world to redeem sinners. Praise God that he did what we could not do. How do we think about this as we close today? First of all, we need to think about the unimaginable kindness of God towards sinners. Maybe you've heard about the cross and Christ a hundred times. Maybe you've been in church forever, and maybe you surrendered your heart to Christ. You came in faith and repentance decades ago. Maybe you've heard this a hundred times, and you've never actually wrestled through it. Maybe you've never actually thought about the reality of this. Don't leave here today and let this be just another hearing. Whether you've heard and responded and received, or whether you've heard and ignored and put it off, do not let this go past and just be another moving story from the Bible. This picture, this redeeming love demands a response from us. Because it's the story of us. You and I are not faithful Hosea in this. And we're not called to read ourselves back into the story at all. But you and I are every bit Gomer as much as Israel was. And that our sin drove us farther and farther away from the God who made us. And you and I had no intention of running back and turning the other way. But at the right time, Christ died, not for good, not for godly, but for sinners. And God poured out his love on a people determined to hate him. And if you have never come to grips with that, today. Respond to that today. That God who is the righteous judge, that God who says sin must be dealt with, will either hold you to account or he will pour it out on the Son. Come to Christ, confess your sins, and place your faith wholly on Him, and know the redeeming, restoring love of God. And if you have already responded to that, do not go through your day and without falling to your knees thanking God for that. How that would transform our hearts and our lives if that picture of gospel love was first and foremost with our thoughts. Second, we ought to think on the hope of restoration because this kind of love matters. Maybe you responded to God. Maybe you confessed your sins a long time ago and you have fallen hard since then. And you wonder just, if you've wandered so far from the path, maybe you were never on the path to begin with. 
Maybe you think back through your life and you think your past is so difficult, so dirty, so unmentionable that God could never, would never love someone like you. Maybe you feel the weight of sin or grief or a burden so great that even though you know this story, it can't even move you toward hope anymore. Remember that there is a hope of restoration, that this world is not it. That because God has done what is necessary to pay the price for sin, you and I look forward to and long for a coming restoration when things will not be as they are. God can restore the most ruined sinner. He can restore the most wicked, adulterous idolater. And He promises them not just a good enough, but a hope and a living hope and a future that is so abundantly and unimaginably good that our minds haven't even conceived of how beautiful it is. And so if you are broken, if you are tired, if you are weary, if you are dejected and hopeless and despondent over your sin, come to the God who provides this kind of hope. And finally, we need to be a people that reflect redeeming love. Because 1 John 4, 11 and 12, the verses right after what we just read says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That kind of love given must be extended. That person who has violated your trust and your affection in a way that you think unimaginably, unthinkably, unredeemably difficult, God says love. And you say, that's not fair. Exactly. That is the love of God that has been poured out on us. We are a people who are then called to extend that love to others. And in doing that, John says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That love extended speaks to a loveless world. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you do what? Love one another. How? Like this. I can't. You're right. This isn't a love like you and I produce. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is the kind of love that God produces in the lives of his people. Let's pray. Lord, how do we respond to a love like that? When our failure was so great, our sin so unthinkably horrific, and yet you redeemed us. You paid the price that was necessary through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that not only covered our sins for a time, but cleansed us and made us right. We are covered in his righteousness. Lord, make us a grateful people. God, I pray that we would be a people that walk in the hope of that kind of redeeming love, that walk in the continued demonstration of that kind of love toward others. And God, I pray that we are a people that walk in absolute dependence on you because we cannot do this on our own. Lord, we love you, but it is only because you first loved us. Amen.